Well, hello, everyone. Uh, as uh, Steve, that sounds weird to say, Steve's my dad. So as my dad just said, uh, my name is Sam. I'm one of the youth pastors and the SRE coordinator here at Richmond, which uh, is a long way of saying that my time is freed up during the week to think about and to spend time working towards sharing the gospel with the youth and children of the Hawkesbury uh, and also thinking of ways to disciple uh, the youth and children of this church well, uh, whether that's in school ministry through SRE or in youth ministry on Friday nights and through the week. And that really is a privilege. Uh, it's, it's really awesome. And the only reason I can do that uh, is because of the generous donations of people to the work of the gospel here at church. So thank you for being a part of that ministry. We find ourselves in Acts 23 today, uh, and by the grace of God, we'll hopefully be able to learn some things together from it. But before we do that, I would love to pray. So please join me. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word now, please open our hearts to receive it, that we may deepen our knowledge of the promises of Jesus, grow to trust him more, and seek to align our lives with your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Often I find myself through the week wasting time on social media. That's uh, not the point that I want to raise at the start here, but it's something that happens to me. And there's this interesting feature on Facebook, which I think is what makes it so addicting, is that when you're watching a video, it just can auto-scroll to the next one and to the next one and to the next one. And there's something that people refer to about social media, about Facebook and Instagram particularly, called the algorithm, which is supposedly this big all-knowing thing that remembers what you've watched uh, and knows things about you, details about you, and so shows you videos that it thinks you might like. Uh, and so obviously this algorithm knows that I'm a mid-20s man, and so I'm constantly bombarded uh, with self-made millionaires with 42 rental properties uh, telling me how I need to work hard while I'm young to be committed to saving and investing in order to achieve financial freedom and that's what life is all about. What always strikes me, though, in these videos is that as a Christian, my priorities and my purpose are completely different. For them, life is all about freedom and having the money to do whatever they want, relying on no one else but themselves to go out and make their dreams a reality. Dreams of a big house, a nice car, a nice family. It's, it's an alluring prospect, but as a Christian, as I read my Bible, I can't help but see something else. When we look at passages like Acts 23, I can see that, yes, we are called to work hard for something. Yes, we are called to put our hope in something. But it's not our own efforts. And it's not money. It's the promises of Jesus. In today's passage, my hope is that we will clearly see through one very obvious negative example uh, and a couple of positive examples the need for us to know the promises of Jesus, for us to trust in the promises of Jesus, and for us to pursue the promises of Jesus. Before we jump right into today's passage, and you might like to have Acts chapter 23 verses 12 to 35 open in front of you, it's important for us to note that we are jumping back into a struggle for power that's been unfolding in our sermons over the last few weeks. It began a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 21 when Paul arrived in Jerusalem and began to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And it is still ongoing today where we are. 
Over the last few weeks, we've seen riots, we've seen angry mobs, we've seen corrupt leaders, and it's gotten so bad that Roman soldiers had to step in and save Paul, to save him by arresting him. And so in today's passage, Paul is a captive. He's a prisoner, held by the Romans because the commander doesn't know what to do with him. He can't seem to see or find anything that Paul has done wrong, but look at it from his perspective. He can't just let Paul go because wherever he goes, riots keep popping up. The Jewish people are so angry with this man that they're running amok. And just before our passage, at night time, as Paul is imprisoned, we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, just one verse before verse 12, that the Lord, meaning Jesus, stood near Paul and comforted him, saying to him, take courage, As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus promises Paul that he will get to Rome to share the good news of the gospel. Our passage begins, though, in verse 12, the next morning, with 40 people who have a very different plan for Paul than what was just promised to him by Jesus. In verses 12 to 15, and you might like to look along with me, we see 40 Jewish men bind themselves with an oath, swearing that they will not eat or drink until they have killed Paul. These are some very committed men. You can go a while without food, like three weeks or so, I think it is, but you can't go very long without water. They've locked themselves into a pretty short, basically three-day timeline to kill Paul. But why are they so angry? Well, it's because Paul is saying the Gentiles, those who aren't God's chosen group of people from the Old Testament, the Gentiles can now share in the promises of God. And this goes against everything they think makes them who they are. Rick spoke about this two weeks ago. Their pride is in their identity. And that was blinding them to the goodness of God to the point that they're willing to kill someone. To achieve their goal, they enlist the chief priests and the elders, the supposedly most devout Jewish men in all of Jerusalem, those who are meant to intercede between the Jewish people and God. And they convince these men to lie to the Roman commander in order to lure Paul out so he can be struck down. Now, why would they do this? Why were these supposedly godly men willing to go to such horrible, ungodly lengths to get rid of Paul? I think it's because they had trust and they had passion to pursue God's goals. They just didn't have the knowledge of what God actually wanted for them. They lacked knowledge of the promises of Jesus. They didn't understand that God's intention for his people all the way back at Abraham, was that through them, the nations would be blessed. And they didn't realize that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, of the blessing to the world through Abraham's descendants, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, through whom the hope of a resurrection of the dead and eternal life was made available not just to Jews, but to everyone. As Paul says in Romans 3, verses 20 to 24, this is a great part of the Bible to remember as a Christian, When discussing whether Jews have an advantage over Gentiles when it comes to approaching God, 
Paul declares definitively that no, they don't. And he goes on to say that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, because of the law, through the law, they become aware of their sin. And now, through Jesus, a righteousness exists that is apart from the law. This is what the prophets and the law were pointing them towards the entire time, that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Even the Jews. But now, through Jesus, all are justified freely by his grace. These men, the assassins and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, were passionately committed to pursuing the wrong end, and they went about it in the wrong way because they started with the wrong knowledge. They lacked knowledge of the promise of Jesus. Just quickly before we move on to our next point for this morning and the rest of the passage, it's always really easy to look at Jewish leaders and the these assassins in this situation and scoff and say, ha, how silly. Surely they can see that this is wrong. Clearly Jesus is the Messiah. They need to let go of their own goals. It's always so easy to stand back and point the finger. But I find myself constantly needing to be reminded that often these stories of religious opposition to the gospel can hold up a very stark mirror to our own lives. Because there are definitely times when I've pursued the wrong end by the wrong means because I didn't understand the promises of Jesus. Or I've pursued the wrong end by the wrong means because I was ignoring the promises that I already knew about. I might know that Jesus died for me and as a result, I'm dead to my sin. But then something comes up to challenge it and I forget. Or I don't want to remember that Jesus promises hope, purpose, joy, and eternal life if we only trust him because something else seems like it might be more fun in the moment. Which leads in nicely to Paul's actions in today's passage. Let's continue on. Because these men, these 40 assassins, make their plans to kill Paul, but clearly God has other plans. Jesus promised Paul in verse 11 that Paul would make it to Rome. In verse 16, we see God working towards that end. Paul's sister's son, which is a long way of saying Paul's nephew, somehow hears of this plot. We aren't told how, but he's in the right place at the right time and hears the details of the assassination plot. The power of God working in small ways to enact his plan. So Paul's nephew, hearing what's going to happen, obviously rushes to Paul. And what does Paul do? Run around screaming, break down in terror, curl into the fetal position in the corner of his cell, hoping nothing bad happens? No. He doesn't panic or despair in the face of the threat. He does two things. He trusts in the promises of God. And at the same time, he engages the means of help that are available to him. We'll look at each of those things in turn, but firstly, he trusts in the promises of God. Paul doesn't freak out or act rashly because he doesn't need to. Jesus has promised him that he will make it to Rome to share the gospel. 
to testify about Jesus to the highest officials in the empire. So Paul doesn't have to worry here. And we read this and it seems so easy for Paul. He just calmly tells his nephew that they should go speak to the commander, then just lets it all play out to some extent. Forty assassins are willing to sacrifice themselves in order to take him down. But Paul knows the promises of Jesus. In this case, a direct promise that he will make it to Rome, but also the promises that are true for all who believe in Jesus. That this message about salvation through Jesus is for all people and will reach the ends of the earth. When compared with a direct promise from the saviour of the world, what's 40 random Jewish guys in Jerusalem? And we see pretty clearly from the rest of the passage that Paul's trust in Jesus is not misplaced. Jesus put Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time to hear the plot against Paul. And as we follow that small miracle onto what comes next, Paul's nephew gets a private audience with the commander of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. That's remarkable. And that Roman commander then immediately prepares an armed escort of 470 Roman soldiers to escort Paul out of the city. It's almost as if God's like, I see your amateur, your 40 amateur Jewish assassins, and I raise you 470 trained Roman killers. Oh, and for good measure, the commander throws in horses, plural, for Paul to ride on. It's like he's got a SWAT team, an armed police escort, and then for good measure, an armoured limo so he can ride in comfort on the way there. Isn't it remarkable to see such extravagant protection for one prisoner, which ultimately doesn't make sense, except that we see God working to show his faithfulness to Paul. He turns the power and the might of the Roman Empire and its legal system to his own ends for the spread of the gospel. Paul is still in chains, though. In fact, he will remain a prisoner for most of the years that he has left. But God works through his imprisonment. And chapter 23 finishes looking forwards to an impending audience with the Roman governor for not just Jerusalem, but the whole region, Marcus Antonius Felix, Governor Felix. And throughout all of this, Paul trusts in the promise of Jesus. He will make it to Rome. But there is a valid question around Paul's actions here. The second thing that we said Paul does when he hears of the assassination attempt. The first is that he trusted in the promise of Jesus, but the second was that he engages the means of help available to him. He pursues a solution to the problem. And you might be thinking, does Paul doing something here mean that he actually doesn't trust in Jesus? Because Jesus promised him that he would make it to Rome and share the gospel there. So Paul could just sit back, do nothing. He'll get there, right? Well, possibly. I mean, God can do anything he wants. He's God. But I think the biblical testimony is with Paul here in showing us that if we know the promises of God and we trust in them, the logical next step is to pursue them. 
The only right next step is to pursue them with any means that God has made available to us. God is going to get Paul to Rome. He's promised it. But of course, Paul has to make use of the situations that God puts him in to be faithful to Jesus and the message of the gospel that he's been given. One of my favorite verses in the Bible that deals with how we accept salvation in Christ comes to us from Paul in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, another great verse to remember as a Christian. I find myself throwing it out so often in scripture classrooms. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What I love about this is that it shows us both the acceptance and the response. Declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. That seems passive at first glance, but ultimately to declare Jesus is Lord is to live with Jesus as Lord, which means you do the things that he tells you to do. God is sovereign and in control of all things. That is an absolute truth. And Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, paying the price for them in the past, present, and future. That is an absolute truth. Do those things combined, does the fact that God's got it and that my sins are paid for mean that I don't need to bother to do anything? Mean that there's no response required of me? To quote Paul again in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, By no means. We don't have to do anything to earn our salvation, but accept it. It's grace. The definition of the word grace is receiving something that you do not deserve. If you deserve it, it's not grace. You accept salvation through Christ. That's the message that Paul is preaching, that the assassins want to stop. Paul knows the promises of Jesus. He trusts them. And so, of course, he pursues them with whatever the Lord has provided him with. And all in all, what is basically a story of Paul the prisoner being shuffled by the Roman Empire from one city to another is actually revealed to us to be a great example of Jesus' faithfulness to his promises. I think the examples from this passage are actually a great challenge to us. And I'm just going to step through them one by one. Perhaps you need to see the warning of the 40 now very hungry and thirsty assassins who, because they didn't understand the promises of Jesus, were destined to empty religion and empty failure, whose passion and dedication were directed wrongly because they didn't start from the right place. They didn't know the truth. Perhaps you need to work on knowing the truth. They needed to know that Jesus died for them, that Jesus wants them to have life to the full in response to his death and resurrection. Jesus wants them to know that they don't need to be bound by laws that just point out their sin, but rather they can be free to set their hearts and minds on things above that bring hope, peace, and joy that can't be found anywhere else. Now, you might not be sitting here today planning to assassinate someone. If you are, please don't. That should be clear. But everyone here is making plans. 
What plans are you making? Perhaps you're planning to buy a house. Perhaps you're planning to buy a fourth house, a rental property. Maybe you're encouraging your kids to take up weekend sport or you're considering it because they've been nagging you for the last couple of weeks. Perhaps you're thinking about how to invest your money in something or you're just starting a new TV show on Netflix or Disney Plus. It's probably a better platform these days. What impact do the promises of Jesus have on your plans? Because the fact of the matter is, if you're a Christian, then that fact alone should define your life and your choices. Jesus made promises to Paul and Paul had to believe them. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're still wrestling with Jesus. You don't know if you believe that God raised him from the dead. You don't know if you want Jesus as Lord of your life. Regardless of where you're at this morning, Jesus has made promises to you. And I think that they're a great place to start when thinking about what he might mean for your life. It's a good place to start to know that Jesus promises hope. He promises joy, not tied to your circumstances. He promises purpose and meaning, and ultimately, a life lived to the full, freed from bondage to your failures. Who else offers that? Where else can you get those things? Perhaps like Paul, you're finding yourself in a situation where it seems like trusting God is really hard. Paul had 40 assassins after him while he was in custody under a brutal pagan empire. That's probably not you this morning, but that doesn't mean your situation isn't hard. That doesn't mean it's easy to trust. Perhaps, though, you need to hear that you actually do need to. You need to trust in the promises of Jesus if you know them. To know that your identity and your joy is not tied to what's going on in your life right now. It's tied to the one who gave his life for you, who promises hope for a life to come. Jesus worked through Paul. He didn't make his life easy. He didn't make his life comfortable. Paul would remain a prisoner for basically the rest of his life. But God was faithful in that situation. And we saw in Acts 23 the overwhelming support that he threw behind Paul in the form of the Roman soldiers as he was pursuing the gospel. Perhaps, though, your tendency is not to be like Paul here. And rather, it's to expect God to do everything with no room for you to be involved in his plans. Like Paul, like Paul, you need to start making use of the situations that God has put you in. Perhaps you need to hear the call to pursue the promises of God. Have you ever considered actually having a conversation with the people in your workplace about Jesus? About the hope that you have in him? About the fact that because of that, you don't need to worry about the other stuff that happens. Have you ever thought about having a real conversation with your next door neighbor about who Jesus is and what he means for their life? 
I know that personally I've been challenged by this passage this week, called to examine my own life and the ways that I need to shore up my knowledge of Jesus' promises, that I need to dwell on them more. Seeing the ways that I need to trust him in situations where my natural tendency is to panic, to stress and to want to grab the steering wheel of my own life and take control. And I've seen the ways that I need to more eagerly want to be part of his plans. I'm going to pray that we can all do these better because we can always improve. But I'm also going to pray that we can be encouraged by the greatest promise of all. The reason for all of this, which is our assurance of salvation in Christ. Please join me as I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that we can be raised to new life just as he rose from the dead. Dear Lord, please help us to know the promises of Jesus, to want to seek to trust in them, to want to live our life in response and turn the situations you've put us into for your glory, to pursue your ends. Dear Lord, please open our hearts to be challenged and encouraged by the promises of Jesus this morning. And it's in his great and powerful name that we pray. Amen.